Good morning. Welcome to Karen University's chapel here in Chatlos Chapel. Welcome once again. We are Karen University's traveling worship band on the way and friends. We would love for you to join us this morning um, in singing. And first, though, we are going to go to God in prayer. So please join me in prayer this morning. Lord, your steadfast love, it never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Because of your faithfulness, God, we have. And what peace your faithfulness brings. And as a group of believers, may our praise be lifted up to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us and let's sing. Have made me 
singing with us. You may be seated.
morning. Thank you on the way. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. It's good to give the Lord praise and to sing of his goodness with you this morning. As we continue in worship, I have the privilege of both introducing our speaker, uh, reading scripture, but also welcoming all of you students, but also our, our open house families here this morning. So for all the students and families who are joining us this morning for chapel, welcome. We're glad to have you. Dr. Brian Morawski is an associate professor for the School of Divinity here at Cairn University. He began teaching at Cairn in 2014 as an adjunct after receiving his bachelor's in Bible and Master of Divinity from Cairn. He went on to earn his PhD in Old Testament from Westminster Theology Seminary. Dr. Morawski spent 15 years in pastoral ministry in New Jersey and Michigan and currently serves part-time as one of the pastors at Riverstone Church in Yardley, PA. He's the author of several books including Preaching Difficult Texts of the Old Testament and a commentary on 1 Peter. Brian is a father of four with his wife Janice, also a Cairn alumnus. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Scripture this morning is from Isaiah 27, verse 1. On that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent. And he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Please welcome Dr. Morawski. Good morning. I am honored to be able to speak with you this morning. Uh, since it's an experience, Karen Day. Uh, what a special privilege it is for us all to be here. It's almost Thanksgiving break. That's another great thing that's on the horizon. So I figured I'd treat you to a little something special and preach on a passage you probably have never heard preached on before. We're going to do something a little fun, a little different this morning. We're going to take a deep dive into one verse of Scripture, but boy, is it an epic verse indeed. It's a verse that utilizes rich theology that stretches all the way from Genesis to Revelation and a lot in between. And as we know, all scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that we might be equipped for every good work. Which means even this verse is relevant for our spiritual lives. So this sermon is either going to be really, really great or really bizarre or really fun or maybe a mix of all those things. We'll have to see how it goes. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord, I pray that you might be among us today. I ask that you would speak through the word of God, challenge our hearts, and more than anything, Lord, let us leave here with a glimpse of your greatness. And I pray that that would cause us to worship you, and I pray that that would cause us to leave our anxieties and fears right at your feet. We thank you, Lord, for all that are here today, and I pray that your word would speak now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read about an epic battle between God and a great sea dragon. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 27. As you're turning there, this part of Isaiah, I'll tell you, is called Isaiah's Little Apocalypse. Four chapters, Isaiah 24 to 27, all kind of focus in on eschatological issues, end times stuff. 
So Isaiah talks about judgment day. Isaiah talks about the return of the Lord. Isaiah talks about the restoration of all things. And in the midst of that, Isaiah says this in Isaiah 27, verse 1. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So Isaiah goes from judgment is coming, restoration is coming, the Lord is coming, to God is going to fight a giant sea monster with a really giant sword. What is this all about? What in the world is or what was Leviathan? I'm going to answer that question in a number of ways. There are only five verses in the Bible that mention the Leviathan by name. But when we look at them, we see that sometimes the Bible talks about Leviathan as a representation of pagan mythological creatures symbolizing evil or chaos. That's a lot to take in, so let me unpack that for you a little bit. Archaeologists have uncovered hundreds of writings from other cultures and other religions surrounding Israel, and many of those ancient cultures shared religious myths about a sea serpent or about a dragon that represent the forces of evil. And oftentimes these dragon myths would battle against the gods of those nations. For example, the Babylonians had a dragon that they called Tiamat. And in one of their writings, Tiamat battled against the Babylonian god Marduk. Marduk ends up slaying Tiamat and shooting her with an arrow and splitting her heart. Same exact way I got dumped in the seventh grade. <laughs> then he crushes her skull, cuts her carcass in two. It's a pretty gruesome story. Really, really violent. The Hittites envisioned a dragon named Ilyunkus. Ilyunkus fought against the Hittite storm god, which was basically their version of Thor before Marvel came out. In their first battle, the dragon wins. Then the gods get together and they devise this plan where they lure the dragon up with a tasty feast. And after it eats the feast, they are able to tie it up and kill it. In Ugaritic tradition, they had a serpentine monster named Lotan. Lotan was a dragon with seven heads. And in their myth, the god Baal defeats Lotan. So all around Israel, the various nations, the various religious groups had these myths about a great dragon, sometimes with multiple heads, sometimes with just one head. And that dragon would oftentimes do battle with their gods who would end up victorious. And that would show the power of these gods that they were able to defeat these mighty dragons. Now sometimes you see those myths creeping into the Bible in various ways. Let me clarify what I mean by that before you think I'm a heretic. Psalm 74 says this, to God, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Notice how in this passage, God crushed the heads, plural, of the Leviathan, singular. Leviathan is pictured as this great sea monster with many heads. That sounds a lot like Lotan, doesn't it? In fact, the word Lotan and the word Leviathan both share the same consonants in their original languages. They're semantically related. In other places of the Bible, sometimes the, the scriptures use the word Rahab to talk about this great sea monster. For instance, Psalm 89 verse 10, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Notice how it mentions specifically Rahab's carcass, similar to that Babylonian myth where Marduk crushes Tiamat's skull and splits her carcass. 
Uh, Isaiah will later even mention Rahab himself. Isaiah 51, he says, Awake, awake, put on strength, the arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? And there are other passages in the scripture that do something similar to this. It talks about Rahab or Leviathan or some sort of dragon or sea monster in this mythological kind of context. Now, by, by talking about a mythological creature, the Bible is not saying that Lotan or Tiamat or Rahab are real. It's a way of taking myths from surrounding religions and surrounding cultures and mocking them by saying that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is stronger than all of those pagan myths. Let me give you an example from our culture. And I am, I am positive that there is a better illustration out there that I'm about to give you, but I'm fairly well known for my terrible analogies, so I don't want to disappoint today, okay? How many of you are fans of the old Japanese Godzilla movies? That's more than I expected. Praise the Lord already. There's another one coming out in a couple weeks. When I was a kid, I remember there was this Godzilla movie marathon on for like two days straight. They showed all of them. And I sat there on the couch and just rotted my life away watching Godzilla. I was hooked. I mean, I loved it. Most of those movies, Godzilla is fighting some either like radioactive monster or a giant robot or an alien or, or whatever, just stomping on people. Any, any way it goes, it was great. Well, 1998, America decided to cash in on the Godzilla craze. Action director Roland Emmerich made an American Godzilla movie. Now it was, if I may say so myself, absolute trash. <laughs> that was the word I was going to use. Terrible, that's a good one too. And it's, it's true. I'm a doctor. I know things. This, this is a, I mean, just, it was terrible. Godzilla looked terrible. The plot was terrible. The acting was terrible. In the original script, Godzilla didn't even have atomic breath. Come on. How can you have a Godzilla movie without the atomic breath, right? It was a travesty. And both the American public and the Japanese rightly rejected it. But Roland Emmerich, his Godzilla became known as like the American Godzilla. Now, fast forward six years. 2004, Japan culminates 50 years of Godzilla films into an epic movie they called Godzilla Final Wars. Godzilla faces off against not one, not two, but a dozen different kaiju monsters. Where is this illustration going, Dr. Murawski? I will, I, I'm getting there. Hang in there, right? Here's the point. Final Wars, Godzilla faces off against a bunch of different monsters, one of them called Zilla. And Zilla looked suspiciously like the American Godzilla. In fact, the Japanese purposely created Zilla with terrible computer effects to further mock the American Godzilla. And let me tell you, I watched this movie, studied it, in fact. It was not even a battle between these two. Zilla is on the screen for like 30 seconds, gets its monster butt kicked, gets pulverized, you never see it again. And that was Japan's way of sticking it to the American version of their beloved monster. Our monster is better than yours because our monster can beat your monster up. I would suggest that's exactly what's going on in Isaiah 27 verse 1. Our God is better than yours. Our God can cut the heads off of the greatest forces of evil that your religion can come up with. 
One of my students, I was given that analogy uh, last semester, maybe last year sometime, and she suggested maybe a better analogy was um, there's, there's a, a famous vegetable that once said, God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's, he's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. So even VeggieTales that sometimes gets it right. And I think that's, again, exactly what's happening in Isaiah 27, verse 1. Sometimes the Bible talks about Leviathan, a sea serpent, a dragon, and borrows from these pagan myths in the surrounding cultures to say, our God is greater than yours. Now, there's other ways the Bible talks about this this monster. Leviathan sometimes, I believe in Scripture, is also a created sea creature, an actual thing. Sometimes in the Bible... It sounds like Leviathan is, an, is a real-life animal, like a dinosaur or a dragon of some kind. In fact, there's a book out there, a Christian fiction book, that imagines what if the Leviathan were real and were eating kids on a school field trip. It's totally bonkers. I don't know what kind of crazy mind made this thing up, but unfortunately the book's out of print now. It's hard to find. Many people, though, view this Leviathan as a real-life creature that once roamed this earth. Do we find that in the Bible? Well, we have verses like this in Psalm 104. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you form to play in it. God is pointing to an actual physical reality here. Some kind of actual sea creature that treats the sea like its playground. There are no hints in this verse that we're talking about a pagan myth other than just using that word Leviathan. But the way that God says, there go, look there, take a look at this, tells you that something physical is in view. Most famously, the book of Job. You're probably familiar with this. Job 41. Can you draw out the Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? The whole chapter of Job 41 details the Leviathan with, with great precision. Talks about its hard scales, its many teeth, its fierce temper. Talks about its snorting out flashes of light like, like fire, like a dragon of some kind. If you've ever read any of the stuff from maybe Answers in Genesis, uh, they'll argue that Leviathan 41 was a real creature. It was not a, a, or excuse me, Job 41, the Leviathan was a real creature, not a pagan myth. It really did breathe out fire. Now, if that seems too fantastical for you, keep in mind, there are lizards in this world that shoot blood out of their eyes. There are beetles that shoot acid out of their butts. And there are ants that can explode on command when they're provoked. Is it too much to really imagine God could have created something that could breathe a little bit of fire? Now, I, I should say this as a biblical scholar. That interpretation of Genesis or, or of, of uh, Job 41 is not the typical scholarly or academic view of that text. A year or two ago, I was reading a book by an evangelical scholar who was arguing that the Leviathan in Job 41 represents Satan. And that the behemoth in Job 40 represents death. Just a few weeks before that, I had read another book uh, by another evangelical scholar who was arguing that Leviathan and behemoth in Job are representatives of cosmic evil. And that has become kind of the standard academic view of the Leviathan in Job. Now personally, I think there's something to be said about the very detailed description that we get in that text. I think there's something to be said that that detailed description comes right after a number of different passages that talk about God's creation and the animals that are under his control. It fits with the created creatures list, in my opinion. 
But it's not just inside the Bible that we find references to the Leviathan being a created creature. We actually see many references outside of Scripture. I'm going to read for you two passages. Both of them come from outside of the Bible. So these are not inspired texts, but they're outside of Scripture, written around the same time as Scripture. The first one is from a book called Second Esdras, which you can find in the Apocrypha, part of the Catholic Bible. Here's what it says. On the fifth day, you, God, commanded the seventh part where the water had been gathered together to bring forth living creatures, birds, and fishes. And so it was done. Then you kept in existence two living creatures, the one you called Behemoth, the other, the name of the other, Leviathan. And you gave Behemoth one of the parts that had been dried up on the third day to live in it where there are a thousand mountains. But to Leviathan you gave the seventh part, the watery part, and you have kept them to be eaten by whom you wish and when you wish. So this book envisions God separating the world into seven major parts. And on the fifth day of creation, God creates the Leviathan and this other big creature named the behemoth. Because these two creatures are too big to kind of exist together, God says the behemoth gets the land, Leviathan gets the water. And it says that Leviathan is going to be eaten by whomever God wants, whenever God wants. So the people of God will one day conquer this great creature and eat it. But it's important to notice in the text that Leviathan and Behemoth are created on what day? Fifth day. Take that, put it in your back pocket, tuck it away, keep it in mind. I want to show you one more text outside of Scripture. This is a document called Second Baruch. Both this passage and the one in Second Esdras were written after the book of Isaiah. And I think they're showing how the Israelites thought of this Leviathan. So look at, look at Second Baruch chapter 29. It says, it will happen when all that which should come to pass in these parts has been accomplished. The anointed one, the Messiah, will begin to be revealed. And behemoth will reveal itself from its place, and Leviathan will come from the sea, the two great monsters which I created on the fifth day of creation, and which I shall have kept until that time. And they will be nourishment for all who are left. Just like that other text, this one says that Leviathan was created on what day? Fifth day of creation. And when the anointed one, the Messiah, comes in those last days, these creatures will be given as food for God's people. So Leviathan created day five, and in the end times, God will conquer the creature so thoroughly that the people of God will eat the Leviathan. Leviathan's steak at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Sounds good to me. Now remember, these two texts are outside Scripture. They're not inspired. I'm not claiming that they're absolute truth. But what I'm saying is that they demonstrate to a degree how many believers, Israelites, at that time, thought about Leviathan. Why would two separate texts by two separate authors outside of the Bible think about Leviathan as a created creature on day five? Well, what happens day five in creation in the Bible? Last text, and then we'll jump back to Isaiah 27. Here's what the Bible actually says. Genesis chapter 1. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. 
on the fifth day of creation, according to the Bible, God creates the great sea creatures. New American Standard translates that the great sea monsters. Right there, first chapter of the inspired text of Scripture. Now, all of that to say, sometimes the Bible depicts this monster as this real, created creature that God is easily able to conquer. Humans might have a hard time controlling this thing. We can't keep it as a pet. It's a creature without fear, but God has no problem taming this beast. Other times, in the Bible, Leviathan is kind of a mockery of pagan myths. God symbolically beats up these monsters of the surrounding cultures and surrounding religions. Now, in both cases, the point is generally the same. God is powerful enough to control the uncontrollable. God is powerful enough to subdue all the forces of evil in this world. So now that I've spent about half this sermon talking about sea monsters, dragons, and Godzilla, let's go back to Isaiah 27 and see how the prophet Isaiah uses this concept. Isaiah 27, verse 1, for the second time. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, is Leviathan a real creature or is it a pagan myth here? Honestly, it's a little bit hard to say. Sometimes the two concepts are maybe blended together so tightly in Scripture, it's very difficult to pull them apart. In this case, if I had to choose, I would lean towards Isaiah talking about a myth. But at the very least, Leviathan represents the forces of evil. It represents the enemies of God. There's even a possibility, as I've seen, as I've shown you on the screen, that there are two monsters being talked about here. The King James Version translates it like this. In that day, the Lord, with his sore and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and... He shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Notice how the King James translates that. Leviathan the piercing serpent, even Leviathan the crooked serpent, and also that dragon that's in the sea. How many monsters does the King James Version have? At least two. There's Leviathan, first and second line there. Then there's the dragon that's in the sea, the third line. The first two lines refer to the same creature. That third line is the second creature. That's one legitimate way to translate the Hebrew text. Now, another way to translate this, not in the King James, I should say NIV up there, in the NIV, in that day the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan the gliding serpent, Leviathan the coiling serpent, he will slay the monster of the sea. Now, notice in this translation, it deletes the words even and and. One monster referred to in three different ways. Now, either one of these translations is actually possible from the Hebrew text. In my opinion, I think actually NIV probably has it closer. In fact, the word the King James Version translates even and the word translated and are both the same word, same letter, really, in the book of, in the Hebrew language. They could be translated either way, and, even, or it could be not translated at all, and it would make sense. So I think all three lines, in my opinion, are referring to the same creature here. But the point is, again, either way, whether it's multiple monsters or one, God is greater. Now the text also uses here several different words to talk about the Leviathan. It calls him a serpent. It calls him a dragon. Serpent translates a Hebrew word nahash. You have to when you say it. Nahash. Dragon translates the Hebrew word tanin. Tanin. 
Both words, nahash and tanin, are used elsewhere in Scripture in highly significant ways. Genesis 1.21, on the fifth day of creation, when God makes the great sea monsters, that great sea monster, that word, translates tanin, dragon. Even more significantly, you know what the devil is called in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1? Now the serpent, nahash, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The Hebrew uses the same word to describe the serpent in Genesis 3 that it used to describe the Leviathan in Isaiah 27.1. Now, as you know, the serpent there is Satan. Satan tempts Eve, who eats of the forbidden, forbidden fruit, and then Adam eats, and then sin enters the world. God later punishes Satan. God punishes Adam and Eve. And while speaking to the servant, serpent, God says to him this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God promises that Eve's offspring will crush the head of this serpent. The great Leviathan, known as Satan, will be defeated by the Messiah. Now, as we already saw all throughout Scripture, these passages talking about God controlling the great sea serpent, God crushing the heads of the Leviathan, God slaying the dragon, some of those passages function as echoes of Genesis 3. They are previews of the final defeat to come from God. All of this God versus Leviathan imagery culminates in the book of Revelation. Listen to how Revelation 12, and and pay careful attention to the language, how it envisions a battle between good and evil, between God and the devil. It says, now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer a place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. You see how the devil is described here? Revelation chapter 12. He is first the dragon. You know what the Greek word for dragon is? Dragon. Dracon, actually. Dracon. We just drag the sound over into English. And dracon is used to translate the Hebrew word tanin. It's also used to translate the Hebrew word leviathan. The devil is called the ancient serpent here. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 3. The armies of God conquer the great dragon, the serpent in Revelation 12, who is the same serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Are you seeing how all this is starting to fit together? Now, if you keep reading in the book of Revelation, eventually you're going to come to chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, shut it, and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. This takes place after the second coming of Christ, many believe. Some people believe this is something taking place now. Depends on your view of eschatology. We're not going to get into that this morning. But what we see here is that the angels seize the dragon, that ancient serpent, and he's tossed into this place called the abyss for a thousand years. After that thousand years, after that millennium is over, the Bible says in Revelation 20, verse 7 to 10, and when those thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. 
And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had been deceiving them or had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the serpent of old, that devil, will one day for a short time have a last ditch effort to conquer God. But it is a one-sided battle. It's Godzilla versus Americanzilla here. God wins, no contest. Satan, that ancient serpent, is tossed into the lake of fire forever. So this imagery of the evil serpent begins in the Garden of Eden. It continues through other books like the book of Isaiah. And, and the prophet predicts how it's going to end. The Lord will come back. He will slay that serpent with a great and powerful sword. And the story is going to end right here after the millennium with that serpent vanquished forever in the lake of fire. Isaiah stands at the nexus of what came before and what the future holds for the Leviathan called Satan. Now going back to Isaiah 27. When the prophet began this prophecy, he began it with the words, in that day. That day refers to the time of the end, the return of the Messiah. In that day, Satan, the fleeing serpent, the twisting serpent, Satan, that, that great dragon of old, will be slain by the Lord. In that day, in that day of the Lord's return, God will slay all the forces of evil for good. And if some of those extra biblical texts might be to believe, Perhaps we'll have Leviathan barbecue ribs for dinner and snack on Leviathan legs for dessert. But here's what we know. Isaiah 27, verse 1. When Christ returns, God will slay the forces of evil. And when we think about Isaiah's message, we realize how that ought to change our present-day perspective. This is not just a passage where, where we're looking forward to something to come and has no relevance for us today. Let me suggest to you two simple applications of this passage to help us as we leave here. First, God's dominance over evil ought to relieve our anxieties. God will conquer the forces of evil one day. And this world, you know it, has plenty of evil to go around. But our God is not weak. God is pictured here as a divine warrior wielding a giant sword, fighting sea serpents and dragons. That is epic. And that is our God. And that should help us sleep at night. I mean, really, what is there for us to be anxious about? What are we so worried about if this is our God? With this God on our side, what do we have to fear? God is bigger than the boogeyman. God knows the day of the wicked is coming. He laughs because he knows the end result. The Leviathan's head will be crushed. The serpent of old will be defeated. That is why we should not fret. When, when we feel like life is giving us a hard time here, we're stressed out, we're anxious, we're, we're wrestling with things. Think about Isaiah 27.1. Picture God with a giant sword hacking through the, dra the, the dragon's head. Picture God stabbing those problems through the heart. God is a powerful God. Sin will not go unpunished. Evil will not go unconquered. Justice will indeed be served one day. And God will come back and conquer chaos and evil for good and serve it to us on a silver platter. So God's dominance over evil 
relieves our anxiety. Secondly, God's dominance over evil motivates us to praise him. It makes sense that we would praise this God. He is, after all, the greatest. Why worship anything less than the greatest? That's what this text is showing us. God is the greatest. My son always wants to know, my nine-year-old, Dad, who's the best? Maybe we're lifting weights, and he's like, Dad, who's the strongest person ever? I had to Google it. It's not me. We're talking about running. Dad, who's the fastest person in the world? Got to Google it, right? We talk about action movies. Dad, what's the best action movie ever? The best is attractive. The best catches our attention. It fascinates us. No one goes to a restaurant and says, hey, what's the second best thing on your menu? I want that. You want the best, right? No one sets their sights on the second best college around. They want Cairn University instead. Right? No one, no one, per, yeah. no one purposely chooses number two when they can have number one. God is number one. He is the most powerful. He will defeat all the enemies around him. Therefore, God deserves our worship. In one of the last Psalms of the Bible, the author reflects on this, calls for all of creation to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, all his angels. Praise the Lord, sun and moon. Praise the Lord, mountains and hills and trees and seas. And you know what else it says? Psalm 148, verse 7. Take a look at this. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Praise the Lord, you tanim, you sea creatures, monsters, leviathans. Even the greatest sea creatures are commanded to recognize who is greater than they are. And if that's the truth for them, how much more is that the truth for us? When you worship God, realize that you are worshiping God, the divine warrior of the universe, who slays the beast, who conquers the dragon, who tames the leviathan. We do not worship some pansy fairy in the sky. He is God Almighty, and he is worthy of our worship. And by the way, that is the God, as great as he is, who humbled himself in love to die on your behalf. Who came down as a baby, took, took sin upon his shoulders, sacrificed himself on the cross, paying the penalty that we deserve, and giving us his righteousness in exchange. That's the God we worship. We never see the Babylonian Marduk doing that. We don't see the Hittite storm god dying for your sins. We don't see the Ugaritic Baal loving us enough to humble himself on our behalf. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. He is a God worthy of worship. He is a God who will one day fully and finally conquer evil. He is a God that relieves our fears and gives us hope for the future. And believers, it is our greatest privilege to worship him together. Let's pray to that God now. Yahweh God, how great you are. You slay the head of the beast. Lord, through the sacrifice of Christ, you provide hope for our eternity. We trust, Lord, that one day you will return. You will right all wrongs. You will bring justice, everlasting rule. And Lord, we will celebrate with you as your people. We tremble before you, warrior God. We are humbled before you, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we leave here today, we would leave 
relieved of our anxieties and fears. And we would also leave in worship of your greatness. We thank you, God, for your word in Isaiah 27.1. May it sit well in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. God bless. Have a great day. Loving in the morning, loving in the noontime.